Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Psalms by C.S. Lewis Part 1 The dominant impression I get from reading the Psalms is one of antiquity. I seem to be looking into a deep pit of time, but looking through a lens which brings the figures who inhabit that depth up close to my eye. In that momentary proximity, they are almost shockingly alien, creatures of unrestrained emotion, wallowing in self-pity, sobbing, cursing, screaming in exultation, clashing uncouth weapons, or dancing to the din of strange musical instruments. Yet, side by side with this, there is also a different image in my mind. Anglican choirs, well-laundered surplices, soapy boys' faces, hassocks, an organ, prayer books, and perhaps the smell of new-mown graveyard grass coming in with the sunlight through an open door. Sometimes the one, sometimes the other impression grows faint, but neither, perhaps, ever quite disappears. The irony reaches its height when a boy soloist sings in that treble which is so beautifully free from all personal emotion the words whereby ancient warriors lashed themselves with frenzy against their enemies, and does this in the service of the God of love, and himself, meanwhile, perhaps thinks neither of that God, nor of ancient wars, but of bullseyes and the comics. This irony, this double or treble vision, is part of the pleasure. I begin to suspect that it is part of the profit, too. How old the Psalms, as we now have them, really are, is a question for the scholars. I am told there is one, number 18, which might really have come down from the age of David himself, that is, from the 10th century B.C. Most of them, however, are said to be post-exilic. The book was put together when the Hebrews, long exiled in Babylonia, were repatriated by that enlightened ruler, Cyrus of Persia. This would bring us down to the 6th century. How much earlier material the book took in is uncertain. Perhaps for our present purpose, it does not greatly matter. The whole spirit and technique, and the characteristic attitudes in the Psalms we have, might be very like those of much older sacred poetry which is now lost. We know that they had such poetry. They must have been already famous for that art when their Babylonian conquerors asked them for a specimen. And some very early pieces occur elsewhere in the Old Testament. Deborah's song of triumph over Sisera in Judges 5 might be as old as the battle that gave rise to it back in the 13th century. If the Hebrews were conservative in such matters, then 6th century poems may be very like those of their ancestors. And we know they were conservative. One can see that by leaping forward six centuries into the New Testament and reading the Magnificat. The Virgin had something other and more momentous to say than the old psalmists. But what she utters is quite unmistakably a psalm. The style, the dwelling on covenant, the delight in the vindication of the poor are all perfectly true to the old model. So might the old model have been true to one yet older, for poetry of that sort did not, like ours, seek to express those things in which individuals differ, and did not aim at novelty. Even if the psalms we read were all composed as late as the 6th century B.C., 
In reading them, I suspect that we have our hands on the near end of a living cord that stretches far back into the past. In most moods, the spirit of the Psalms feels to me more alien than that of the oldest Greek literature. But that is not an affair of dates. Distance in temper does not always coincide with distance in time. To most of us, perhaps to all of us at most times, unless we are either very uneducated or very holy, or, as might be, both, the civilization that descends from Greece and Rome is closer, more congenial, than what we inherit from ancient Israel. The very words and concepts which we use for science, philosophy, criticism, government, grammar, are all Greco-Roman. It is this, and not Israel, that has made us, in the ordinary sense, civilized. But no Christian can read the Bible without discovering that these ancient Hebrews, generally so remote, may at any moment turn out to be our brothers in a sense in which no Greek or Roman ever was. What a dull, remote thing, for example, the book of Proverbs seems at first glance. Bearded Orientals uttering endless platitudes, as if in a parody of the Arabian Nights. Compared with Plato, or Aristotle, compared even with Xenophon, it is not thought at all. Then, suddenly, just as you are going to give it up, your eye falls on the words, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. 25.21 One rubs one's eyes. So they were saying that already. They knew that so long before Christ came. There is nothing like it in Greek, nor, if my memory serves me, in Confucius. And this is the sort of surprise we shall often get in the Psalms. These strange alien figures may at any moment show that, in spiritual descent, as opposed to cultural, it is they, after all, who are our ancestors, and the classical nations who are alien. Conversely, in reading the classics, we sometimes have the opposite surprise. Those loved authors, so civilized, tolerant, humane, and enlightened, every now and then reveal that they are divided from us by a gulf. Hence the eternal, roguish tittering about pederasty in Plato, or the hard pride that makes Aristotle's ethics in places almost comic. We begin to doubt whether any one of them, even Virgil himself, if we could recall him from the dead, might not, in the first hour's conversation, let out something that would utterly estrange us. I do not at all mean that the Hebrews were just better than the Greeks and the Romans. On the contrary, we shall find in the Psalms expressions of a cruelty more vindictive and a self-righteousness more complete than anything in the classics. If we ignore such passages and read only a few selected favorite psalms, we miss the point. For the point is precisely this, that these same fanatic and homicidal Hebrews, and not the more enlightened peoples, again and again, for brief moments, reach a Christian level of spirituality. It is not that they are better or worse than the pagans, but that they are both better and worse. One is forced to recognize that, in one respect, these alien poets are our predecessors, and the only predecessors we can find in all antiquity. They have something the pagans have not. They know something of which Socrates was ignorant. This something does not seem to us to arise at all naturally from what else we can see of their character. 
It looks like something that has been given them from outside. In fact, like what it professes to be, a revelation. Their claim to be the chosen people is strong. We may indeed be surprised at the choice. If we had been allowed to see the world as it was, say, in the 15th century BC, and asked to guess which of the stocks then existing was going to be entrusted with the consciousness of God, and with the transmission of that blood which would one day produce a body for the incarnation of God himself, I do not think many of us would have guessed right. I think the Egyptians would have been my own favorite. A similar strangeness meets us elsewhere. The raw material out of which a thing is made is not always that which would seem most promising to one who does not understand the process. There is nothing hard, brittle, or transparent about the ingredients of glass. Again, to come nearer to the present matter, do not our own personal ancestors, our family, seem at first rather improbable? Later, as we begin to recognize the heredity that works in us, we understand. But surely not at first. What young man feels, quote, these are exactly the sort of people whose son, or grandson or descendant, I might be expected to be. For usually, in early life, the people with whom one seems to have most in common, the people who share one's interests, the men of one's own totem, are not one's relatives. So that the idea of having been born into the wrong family is an attractive myth. We are delighted when the hero in Siegfried forces the dwarf to confess that he is not his son. The thing one is made out of is not necessarily like oneself still less like one's idea of that self, and looks at first even more unlike than it really is. It may be so with the origins of our species. The evolutionists say we descend from anthropoids, creatures akin to apes. Is it, at first sight, the descent we would have chosen? If an intelligence such as ours had looked at the pre-human world and been told that one of the species then in existence was to be raised to rational, and spiritual status, and at last behold its creator face to face, would he have picked the winner? Not unless it realized the importance of its hand-like paws, just as one would not guess the ingredients of glass unless one knew some chemistry. So we, because of something we do not know, are bewildered to find the ancient Hebrews chosen as they were. From this point of view, there is no better psalm to begin with than number 109. It ends with a verse which every Christian can at once make his own. The Lord is the prisoner's friend, standing by the poor, or friendless, to save him from unjust judges. This is one of the characteristic notes of the Psalms, and one of the things for which we love them. It anticipates the temper of the Magnificat. It is hardly to be paralleled in pagan literature. The Greek gods were very active in casting down the proud, but hardly in raising the humble. It will commend itself even to a modern unbeliever of goodwill. He may call it wishful thinking, but he will respect the wish. In a word, if we read only the last verse, we should feel in full sympathy with this psalmist. But the moment we look back at what precedes that verse, he turns out to be removed from us by infinite distances. Or, worse still, to be loathsomely akin to that in us which is the main business of life to purge away. Psalm 109 is as unabashed a hymn of hate as was ever written. The poet has a detailed program for his enemy which he hopes God will carry out. 
the enemy is to be placed under a wicked ruler. He is to have an accuser perpetually at his side, whether an evil spirit, a Satan, as our prayer book version renders it, or merely a human accuser, a spy, an agent provocateur, a member of the secret police. Verse 5. If the enemy attempts to have any religious life, this, far from improving his position, must make him even worse. Quote, Let his prayer be turned into sin. Verse 6. And after his death, which had better please be early. Verse 7. His widow and children and descendants are to live in unrelieved misery. Verses 8 through 12. What makes our blood run cold, even more than the unrestrained vindictiveness, is the writer's untroubled conscience. He has no qualms, scruples, or reservations. No shame. He gives hatred free reign, encourages and spurs it on, in a sort of ghastly innocence. He offers these feelings, just as they are, to God, never doubting that they will be acceptable turning straight from the maledictions to Deal thou with me, O Lord, according unto thy name, for sweet is thy mercy. Verse 20. The man himself, of course, lived very long ago. His injuries may have been, humanly speaking, beyond endurance. He was doubtless a hot-blooded barbarian, more like a modern child than a modern man. And though we believe, and can even see from the last verse, that some knowledge of the real God had come to his race, Yet he lived in the cold of the year, the early spring of Revelation, and those first gleams of knowledge were like snowdrops, exposed to the frosts. For him, then, there may have been excuses. But we? What good can we find in reading such stuff? Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>